All right, we made it. Week four of How Have We Never Covered. Looks like we made it. Look how much movies we've talked about. Yeah, so 64 titles total, and we've come down to this, our final week, final champion. It is Bring It On, uh, which uh, had a fun little run to the finals. Um, It was between Bring It On and The Sixth Sense. Uh, The Sixth Sense destroys Avatar in round one. Burr, it's cold in here. There must be some dead folk in the atmosphere. (laughs) Uh, It went even killed against Wonder Woman. It easily took out Toy Story, uh, and then it bowed to bring it on, uh, which had a close win in the first round over Pleasantville. Uh, it easily defeated Conan the Barbarian. No no contest, yeah. Handled the Iron Giant. And Shocker. just smoked the Sixth Sense uh, in the second biggest win of Week 4. What was the biggest one of Week 4? Uh, the biggest win was the Sixth Sense over Avatar, okay. at 79% to 21%. Ooh, absolutely nilly. destroyed it. Wow. Nobody, nobody, nobody wanted to talk about Avatar, thank no. goodness. And the closest win was LA Confidential over Shaft, uh, which came down to a tie. That's right. We had to do Which like was the a... first tie of the whole four-week thing, which was surprising to me. Yeah, it was kind of weird. I, you had to do a, a last-minute tiebreaker. Yeah, and, and even that was close, but LA Confidential did eke out that win in the tiebreaker, so, uh, which was fun. But yeah. Oh, and a fun fact, Iron Giant beat Boogie Nights by 69%. <laughs> nice. Nice. So, here we are. God, that is that's a fun matchup. It's, yeah. I really did expect us to be talking about Iron Giant. This I, week. I was I was on thinking it. it was going to happen too, yeah. I um, wouldn't have been mad. I would have I'm not mad about this, honestly. Know, yeah. yeah, this is fine too. But so. it is surprising to me. I I was a little surprised, but I guess Spirit there's Fingers a... beat Guns. There it is. Every time. Every time. Let's try that. Yeah. <laughs> tell that to Portland. In your next duel. Yeah. For a kinder, gentler world. <laughs> yeah, you tell that to the wall of moms. I don't I don't think spirit <laughs> fingers are going to work. Bring the leaf blowers. Pepsi not doing it for you? <laughs> try spirit fingers. So, yeah, bring it on. That's that's it. We uh, we appreciate you so much uh, in all of this. Yeah. Uh, we also will talk about this later, I'm sure, but we uh, let uh, you, the listeners and the voters, uh, decide next week's episode as well. Yeah, but, a little redemption pick. Yeah, but thank you so much for participating. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We'll uh, do stuff like this in the future, maybe not so big, but uh, I think it's a fun way to interact and engage. I love it, yeah. And it keeps us on our toes, because we don't know what we're going to do until we get to that last day. It really is, uh, you know, because usually we we all try to get our homework done, if at all possible, early in the week. So it it is fun to, like, not know what we're going to be talking about until Thursday evening. And really Friday just have morning. to cram to get yeah. ready, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I agree, Arthur. It's kept us on our toes. It's a fun thought process. So, all right, bring it on. Oh, hello, everybody again, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We gather around table, we discuss films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. And, uh, His bring name's it- Dustin. My name's Dustin. I'm Arthur. I'm Dalton. And uh, yes, indeed, uh, we are here to talk about this movie that will never find its way into course, I'm certain. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot to be said about it. So uh, in case you're tuning in for the very first time, this is a analysis show, not a review show. Nope. Almost did it backwards. And that means we are going to spoil the ending so you'll know who wins the NCA National UCA cheerleading champ. I don't know, uh, whatever the fictitious organization of which they are competing uh, in cheerleading stuff. Uh, they all would have been disqualified. Apparently, they do a bunch of moves that are illegal in high school competitive cheer. Oh, really? For safety reasons. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They do a lot of collegiate level moves in this movie. Okay, well, yeah. that interesting. fun tidbit for you. I'm I'm I am titted and bitted. Thank you very much for that. Um, so uh, we are going to spoil the movie, but we'll avoid that at the first part of the show. We'll have synopsis and uh, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be. Spoiled 
spoiler light. And then we'll get into uh, expanding the syllabus, which is a thought experiment that I'll say more about later. And uh, when we get into that, it could be moderate spoilers there. Uh, indeed, probably so. And then from there, we get down to business, and then all spoiler bets are off. Yep, that's where we will reveal that Missy is, in fact, Torrance's uh, Tyler Durden. Yes. <laughs> she is, I think. That's a good argument. Uh, so, without any further ado, let's hear a synopsis, Arthur. I got really concerned when Haley Joel Osment showed up in the high school. Um <laughs> uh, but it didn't pan out the way I thought it was going to. In her senior year, Torrance Shipman is ecstatic to be named cheer captain. The outgoing captain has left them with a routine that is sure to lead them to a sixth consecutive national title. However, Torrance, Torrance is a weird name, Torrance learns from a new recruit that their winning routines were actually stolen from an underprivileged school in East Compton. After a confrontation between the two squads, Torrance decides to completely upend their cheer routine in favor of something original. With the help of an outsider, a choreographer, and her veteran cheer team, Torrance feels like they have the right tools for a national championship. But will they be ready in time to compete? What else could possibly go wrong? Indeed, and hilarity ensues. This uh, feels like a good time to bring up, fellas. I, uh, I've got bad news. I have found out that uh, the person who started this podcast uh, before the three of us joined did, in fact, steal our entire premise. So we are <laughs> going to have to go back to the drawing board. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Again. Boy. We'll, oh, have to, we'll have to reboot the format of the show for a, what, third, fourth time? Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Whatever helps us sleep at night. I think, I think it'd be fourth. I sleep just fine. <laughs> I sleep okay. So, uh, without any further ado, then, Dalton, do you like? Bring it on. I Had either of you seen this before, real quick? Nope. Okay, no for Dustin, yes for Arthur. This, Multiple times. Okay, same yeah. here. This was uh, having a, a sister who was in dance and palm. Uh, this this film was a staple of my I house. I have no sisters. Yeah. I, I, uh, again, I know neither. Uh, Arthur, you have a sister you didn't grow up with, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, my sister that I you know grew up with uh, loved this movie. Uh, we watched it a bunch, and I have not seen it in many, many years. So it was very fun to revisit. Uh, boy, howdy, the 2000s were a strange, strange decade. Uh, we've talked a lot about movies that exist in the, like that immediate pre-9-11, uh, like 98 to mid-2001 era a lot. Just weird movies, and this film is no exception. Uh, it's, I'm going to go ahead and echo, and I just said this off air to the, to the fellas, but uh, Roger Ebert, uh, his review when this film came out, uh, talked a lot about uh, the summer of 2000 being filled with movies that feel stuck between R ratings and PG-13 ratings, and I think that is probably the biggest slight against this film, is it just can't find a groove to sit in. It, it's too raunchy for young teens, it's too goofy for older teens, uh, is kind of the argument that Ebert makes, and I, I find myself in largely in agreement with him, because the, the film that we get... Um, would seem to imply that there's a really interesting kind of satirical screenplay at work. Uh, and so much of this film feels studio noted, um, uh, including, and I'm, I'm borrowing this idea from the, the Bechdel cast, which is a very good podcast you should check out. But they, they spent a lot of time talking about the character of Cliff, played by Jesse Bradford, uh, the Eliza Dushku's brother character, who is such a Peyton Reed insert character that he is, in fact, wearing T-shirts from Peyton Reed's uh, own uh, punk T-shirt collection. Huh. So it really does that brother character, as much as I related to him when I was 13 and watching this with my, my sister, uh, really does feel like a male director insert in, in ways that uh, just, I don't know, are not useful. Uh, just make Missy gay. Make Missy and Torrance gay. Come on. Uh, I don't know. Missy's already, you know, punk enough. She doesn't need a punk brother. Uh, it's cute. I, there's, for every, you know, now that I've said all these things about the movie that I, I don't like or find frustrating or annoying, there's a lot to like here. It's funny. 
the Spirit Fingers uh, bit is an all-timer that is uh, still joked about to this day. Um, so there's there are a lot of funny bits in this film. Uh, but there are also a lot of very early 2000s bits uh, in, involving uh, homophobic slurs that uh, would not make their way into a PG-13 film uh, in, in, in 2020, I don't think. So I, I don't know. It is a mixed bag in, in terms of its its own humor within the film. Um, it does kind of exist in that weird high school movie uh, genre that uh, exists separately from adults, which, I don't know, I'm not always opposed to that. I think the uh, the worlds of teenagers do uh, tend to have little regard for uh, the adults in their lives. So I, I don't know that that's like a, a fully off-the-beaten-path premise for a movie to have, especially a movie set in a, a rich community. Uh, naming the high school Beef Ranch High School is very funny to me, and uh, will never stop being funny to me. Um, and and that, that is the, the kind of touch that does make you feel like, I bet this screenplay was more interesting before the studio got its hands on it. Um, hard to say. You know, I've, I've never read the original draft. I'm sure somebody nope. out there has. Um but yeah, it, it is kind of a light, breezy romp. Uh, I, I think it's, it is weird to me that this film has had five direct-to-video sequels. Uh, I think it's five, five or four. Wowzers. Uh, yeah, tons. Uh, so it, it is fun that this film has had such like cultural longevity, uh, as much as you can call a lengthy direct-to-video franchise cultural longevity. But I don't know. Th- there is a lot here that's fun. I mean, I'm sure we will get into this in analysis, but the, the main overarching plot of... Uh, uh, white theft of black culture is really relevant, uh, really at any time in American history, but uh, especially in the early 2000s as, as hip-hop is kind of taking over popular music. I think that's a... It, the film's about three to five years ahead of its time in some weird ways in that regard, so I do appreciate that. Um, I, I am uh, so frustrated, though, watching this film, thinking about the film careers of Eliza Dushku and Gabrielle Union, uh, because they, they do so much good work in this film. Which one's Gabrielle Union? That's very cute of you to say. Uh, I mean, Kirsten Dunst, are you being serious? She's the leader of the the Clovers. She's the oh, team captain. that's yeah. not Brandy? No, that's Gabrielle. God damn it, Dustin. <sighs> We're I off to a bad start. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did watch this on my phone. Okay, wow. Uh, Scorsese would be so upset. I was, I was going to say David Lynch would be so upset with him. Uh, I don't know that Peyton Reed would care. Like David Lynch would care it less than Scorsese. That's fair. Uh, I'm curious how Peyton Reed would feel about that, uh, the director of this film. Who knows? Maybe. I wasn't paying attention. It's Look, it's it's a breezy film. It's easy to check out during, so I don't blame you. Uh, it is definitely not the best uh, teen film of the aughts uh, by a long stretch, and we'll get into that more later. But I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot here that's fun, uh, a lot here to enjoy. Uh, at the very least, enough to enjoy that it, I think, uh, makes the things that are kind of problematic and gross about this movie go down a little bit smoother. Um, I don't know. I'm, I think we're going to have fun talking about this when we get to analysis, but I, I was excited to revisit it just because it's been so long. But yeah, it is a film where you you feel the hand of the early 2000s Hollywood studio system upon it in a, in a very specific way, I think. But uh, over, overall, there, there's things to like here. There there are interesting things uh, touched upon, and I guess that is probably the, the biggest disappointment of the film, is uh, the interesting things are not dealt with in more depth. The funniest bits do not go on long enough and are too few and far between. Um, so again, it's it's a very middle-of-the-road teen movie overall, but I, I, again, the entire time I was watching, and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this bit, I remember this bit. And it is, yeah, it's it's very remem- memorable, it's very quotable. It, it makes sense that it kind of has continued to have the this cult love around it that it's had. 
uh, it is just frustrating. I, again, I mentioned, you know, Missy's superlative brother, Cliff, uh, who again spoke to me when I was watching this movie with my sister, uh, who was in Dance and Palm, but it's not really relevant to the plot of the film. We could have lost him and added about 15 to 20 minutes more of the, the Clover's uh, team and, and learning more about what their deal is. Because uh, as soon as they show up, uh, it really does feel like the film should belong to both squads like in tandem. It, yeah. It's fine to introduce the Clovers at like the end of the first act. I don't know that it's fine. Because apparently, uh, I, again, doing my research, there's a bunch of clips uh, of scenes with uh, Gabrielle Union's character Isis uh, in the trailer that are not in the film. So apparently within the script and on the cutting room floor, there's more content with Isis and her squad. Mm. And uh, Yeah, I think the film could use more of that, especially uh, based on where it ends up, which we'll get into later. But yeah, overall, I'm not mad. We, I'm, I'm in fact glad that this one, uh, how we never covered week four. Very good, very good. Um, just for the record, I want to say I didn't know who Eliza Dushku was either until you said she was Missy. Um, okay. Because I'm not a Buffy fan, so didn't. didn't That's true. Know, yeah, you've never watched that far into Buffy. No. So I did not make those connections at all. So thank you for that, though, Dalton. Um, Arthur, what do you think of Bring It On? I'm a lot like Dalton. I, I think it's fun. I, I think it's just enjoyable to watch. Pretty pretty easy to watch. Um, I, I laugh uh, quite a bit. Um, I think it's got some fun bits. Missy's uh, the poo, Arthur. Take a whiff. I, there it is. Um, you know, so uh, it's got that punchy, quotable dialogue, uh, which is kind of what I think helps elevate this and has allowed it to last as long as it does uh, with this kind of cult. Uh, connection that it has um i I think there's some really smart uh, cinematography and direction i think there's some great camera placement and blocking uh that does a lot to portray the character relationships uh and uh inner character dynamics and the conflict um a lot of great use of kind of towering shots when the villains are speaking or low angle shots and stuff like that really simple uh camera grammar but it works i think really well and effectively here. yeah especially that that low angle shot we get of the the clovers doing the birds cold in here routine yeah. like because it's just so much better it is lights out better than when we see it done by the toros you're, yeah you're right it's it's basic film language stuff but it's super effective it's executed very well here uh i love the opening busby berkeley-esque uh yes a cheer routine yeah. uh which is i think is just super smart and it kind of really elevates the elements of satire here because it outlines very comically exactly what this movie's about. It's a great bit of exposition that's hidden uh, in this silly satirical routine. We get everybody's names in that opening yep. scene. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a wonderful use of that uh, sequence and that style of sequence and very classic uh, Hollywood in that regard. And I think it works very well to set up what we're about to see. Uh, but like Dalton said, it's very dated. It's very got some problematic humor, and so it, it's kind of a double-edged sword of a film. I think I, I was happy at one. I was voting for it right along with everybody else um, because there is a bit of nostalgia there. I, you know, I watched this when I was younger. I think it's just a fun comedy that kind of does. You know, it's not one of the best of its era, but I think it's one of the more memorable of its era, if nothing else. Totally. Um, the whole spirit fingers thing has kind of stood the test of time. Well, it's a great, like, Kirsten Dunst-like transitioning from child roles to adult, adult role yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, because this is about the same year, she did, right before she does Spider-Man. Yeah. So it's kind of in that period. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. I love Eliza Dushku. I love Gabrielle Union. Uh, just a great, fun, young cast. Um, Gabrielle Union is a full 10 years older than Kirsten Dunst. Really? Yeah, she's 27 years old when she made this movie. Wow. Yeah, Kirsten's like 17. Yeah. Huh. Hollywood's fucked. It's yeah. weird. It's an interesting industry. Yeah, it is. Well, she passes. Oh, well, that's the thing. I mean, they all look like they're in their early 20s, so you don't really question how old anybody is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the high school thing of this period is everybody's older anyway. Yeah, yeah so. the, the Dawson Creek's method, uh, yeah. Dawson's Creek method of casting. Yeah. Uh, but I had fun with it, so like Dalton, I'm not mad. I'm happy we watched it. I'm happy it won. Um, 
as much as I love the sixth sense, I, I would much rather be talking about Bring It On, I think. Uh, so, yeah. Dustin, right. where are you at? This was your first watch. You watched it on I'm... your phone, doing a great disservice to everyone who worked on the film. I did, and I apologize for that. But I think it's a fine sports movie. I mean, th- you know, it, it, it does what I want from a sports movie. It, it does this thing in which these characters, you know, Kirsten Dunn's character especially, has some sort of internal and somewhat external bit of conflict to sort of mature and figure out who she is and what she cares about and what's important in life. Uh, it has a, you know, that sort of great Scooby team working alongside that are fulfilling the appropriate archetypes for that kind of movie. Uh, there's a great foil that's not really a foil, but results in uh, sort of everything, um, you know, breaks down, you know, as, as sort of that act structure works out just perfectly. And then the final competition. And training montages to get you there. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in that sense, it does everything that it's supposed to do in a sports movie. Uh, it's interesting because it is cheerleaders, because it's not ordinarily what we think of as sport. And all those cheerleading absolutely is an yeah. athletic competition in a sport. And again, the like uh, my you know tidbit about the illegal moves aside, like the athleticism we see does really do speak to the the difficulty of, of cheerleading and and how athletic it is for sure for sure and so it, it shines a light on you know what would be otherwise kind of an unknown sport you know i mean everyone knows what cheerleading is but you know the the, the level of competition that's involved and what goes on with it yeah. it is interesting that uh it is a sports team without a coach i just find that no adults no adults being present at all is just interesting but fine i mean it works fine for the narrative you know of what yeah. we're doing you know with the film so i don't have a problem with that but i just you know want to throw that out there it is my understanding of a uh, rich folk in san diego that that's how it works that right uh, there's no adults <laughs> they're all getting drunk and going to fundraisers something like that yeah uh there, there's a moment in which um our uh i forget the name of our choreographer it's like christoph it is uh oh god i had it memorized before i came to sit down to record i'm so mad at myself because it sounds like a like this guy's like fifth draft of a fake name it's truly incredible it's polanski sparky polanski sparky polanski oh my gosh what an incredible name but yeah the dude shows up and he walks Oh, that's ian roberts of course it is with you know just the leather boots that are up to his middle of his calves they lace up in the back too did you notice i did notice that (laughs) and as he's walking in in his long coat I, i had this moment i shared this off air with the guys but i won't say it again is i just thought oh please dear god let it be patrick swayze please let it be patrick swayze and then it wasn't and it was okay because it was kind of a, you know, whoever that was playing Will Arnett. Yeah, I didn't recognize um, him with the goatee, but it's Ian Roberts, who's a super famous, like, Second City alum, has done a, been written on a bunch of stuff. You, okay. You would know his credits. We okay. don't need to get into him, though. Fair enough, fair enough. But he's doing a Will Arnett character from Arrested Development, which <laughs> I'm all for, and it's a lot of fun, you know, it's illusions, you know, is what I wanted him to do. And uh, so that, that, I mean, again, I laughed when I needed to laugh. It was appropriately funny in the way that uh, these kind of punchy, uh, dialogue-heavy kinds of movies are funny. Uh, The choreography is pretty solid. And uh, so, yeah, that I'll enjoy. Uh, As far as, like, the unbelievability of these particular teenagers and thinking the way that they do and acting the way they do, you know, there's there's a lot of sort of just eye-rolling. You know, Xander is a manic pixie dream girl for the sake of Kirsten Dunst is an interesting twist. Uh, But... I believe in you. Yeah. Your parents don't believe in you, but I, me, the boy, does. Yeah, because you need that boy affirmation. Tell your children you love them. Oh, my gosh. Must I? Uh, Moving on. Tell them you accept (laughs) them. Must I? You must, unless you want some cliff to sweep in. Oh, maybe they need a cliff. Um... 
I want to push them off. Anyway, <laughs> none. Of, I love my children. I'm just kidding. Uh, but anyway, they don't listen to this show. They don't listen to the show anyway. Boys, I love you. I love you very much, deeply. Uh, anyway, he does love Rose more. Though, I, boys, I, you have to know that. Oh, you're right on. I have to see. I'm not affirming the girl now already. Well, but they understand implicitly that you love her the best. Yes. Well, yeah. She's the youngest, and thus far has done the least to piss you off. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Give her time. <laughs> Her mother. I have all kinds of things against her. Moving right along. Um, <laughs> anyhow, uh, this is you know fun. It works on on levels. It is a bit light. It's a bit fluffy. It's a bit airy. It's a bit problematic. It's a bit '90s with you know even though it was made in 2000, it's got all that stuff going on for it. But no, I'm not I'm not mad about it at all. It's 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 fine. It's a very good sports movie. Uh, yeah. So, but do I like sports movies? Do I like teen, teen comedies that much? Not so much. So, two genres you were famously not in love with. So, yeah. As far as it doing those things, though, it's doing it just fine. And so, I don't have a problem with it, other than it being what it is, which is not really a fair thing to have a problem with. So, yeah. There you go. Um, so I'm meh, but good. And so there you go, dear listener. That's where we're coming from. Let's do our thought experiment, which is called Expanding the Syllabus. So you're teaching a class in which this film is a text, perhaps primary, perhaps secondary. But we want to know what's primary and what's secondary in addition to it. What will you read? What will you watch? What will you think about? And how would you go about this? What class is it that you're teaching this film in? And so we're doing the film studies thing uh, by pretending that we're teaching this movie for the class. So I go to you first. Arthur, what do you have to say about Bring It On in terms of expanding that their syllabus? Well, Dalton already alluded to kind of the, the nature of the relationship between Missy and Eliza Dushku's character, who I can't think of right now off the top of my head. Missy. What's? Torrance. Torrance. Torrance, Jeez, Torrance hate, and Missy. You know what her brother's name is? Justin. Of what? course. Getting a short shrift as the younger sibling. I know. No work. Put He's in the most believable name. person in this movie. Justin? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah for by sure. a long shot. Uh-huh. <laughs> Look, I was an older brother, and I was a total Justin. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so based on that relationship around uh, Torrance and Missy, uh, and the kind of uh, idea floated out there that Missy is coded queer, uh, which is a really more interesting movie, I think. I think she is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Oh, other than, yeah, the, the some of the... the the stalwarts of the squad, you know, being homophobic towards her. That's really the only mention of it we get, but I, I, I agree with you, Arthur. I feel it's like it's pretty heavy. A little bit. At least it's become a very heavy fan theory, I think, in, in some circles. <clears throat> well, and I think that's probably got a lot to do with, like, the longevity of this film, is it's kind of overall, again, despite the homophobic slurs, there is a, a general kind of early aughts queerness to this film in some ways. Yeah, so I want to talk about the queer coding uh, in film. And uh, I don't know, this would probably be part of a maybe a week in a longer class about, I don't know. Gender and film, maybe. Yeah, maybe gender. That'd be a good place to put it, I guess. Um, so I would start with The Celluloid Closet uh, from 95, the documentary directed by Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman based on the book by Vito Russo, uh, which is just kind of a history of homosexuality on film, exploring how uh, homosexual characters are portrayed throughout the pantheon of film. Um, I think that's a good starting point for this class. I also found an article on controlforever.com called Queer Coding in Horror Film by Inez Mendoza Perez, um, wherein stated queer coding is exactly what it claims to be. Coding characters as some variation of not straight or implying characters uh, aren't entirely straight or cisgendered through subtext. And this is just a little article kind of exploring uh, these characters in horror film specifically, but I think it's a good starting point to kind of define that and, and really kind of plant that idea of what it is and what to look for. Uh, from there, we kind of talk about the long history of uh, queerness and the production code and censorship and things of that nature. And so you got to talk about the Hayes Code and the way in which that 
uh, prevented or censored those relationships and characters uh, and how um, directors work around that or often use uh, queer coding to uh, establish villainy uh, within their films. And I'm going to go specifically with Hitchcock, and I've got a few examples there. Uh, in his work, I'm going to start with uh, Rebecca, um, his first work in America, uh, with uh, Ms. Danvers, who is often uh, considered uh, coded as queer yeah. there, mm -hmm. and the, I guess, best villain of the movie. hasn't been so much as more of a foil, maybe, but uh, kind of the villainous there. I also want to look at North by Northwest and Martin Landau's character there as the heavy, mm -hmm. um, who I believe also kind of has that same treatment. And then I'll go with Strangers on the Train, I think is the third one. I considered Rope as well. I think Farley Granger's Farley Granger, yeah, for sure. uh, role in that. I mean, God, important. you could do an entire class of villains that are coded queer. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And a lot of my Google searches, that's what it came up, right? Queer coding villains. And, yeah. And so that was kind of the basis. You just of the entirety of, of the Powerpuff Girls? Yeah, him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm uh, Mojo Jojo a little bit, if you really, I don't know, but him for sure. Yeah. And so we'll talk about the lasting impact of the Hayes Code and how that many of those kind of ramifications have carried over, including the uh, censorship of quote unquote depictions of sexual perversion or gay sex, essentially, and how those um, relationships could be portrayed and how mm -hmm. we still don't really get to see that portrayal unless it's usually uh, lesbian. Um, a lot of times, you know, male sex is censored or still frowned upon. But well, well, again, historically, uh, men just haven't cared enough about women to be homophobic towards gay women. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, look at, uh, I've got most of the uh, translations of the New Testament. <laughs> so, uh, from there, I would move uh, into the 90s. I would talk about Walt Disney's villains. And I would do oh. Aladdin and Lion King, talk about Jafar, talk about Scar. Yeah. Uh, and kind of problematize those, I think, um, Probably uh, Jafar a little more so. Uh, Scar, I think. Yeah, they both kind of are situated in like a general like English theatricism. But yeah, yeah I, Jafar for sure. But I think, yeah, I think you're right with Jeremy Irons' portrayal of Scar yeah. having a, those undertones as well. And uh, the hyenas as well. Yeah. Uh, from there, I would probably talk about uh, Interview with a Vampire as nice. a more, I think, I said quote-unquote positive uh, variation of this. Obviously, anytime you talk about vampirism, sexual interaction is a part of that conversation. On uh, the uh, relationship between Lestat and whoever, Cruz and Pitt, yeah, uh, Louis, that's right, and Louis. kind of the there's a sexual fluidity to like everybody in that movie that's interesting, yeah. and I think that's kind of inherent to the vampirism in, in traditional texts. But uh, looking at their relationship and kind of this construction of a family unit with uh, Kirsten Dunst herself, yeah. yeah, as the kind of daughter figure in that family unit that they uh, established there. Uh, from there, I would probably move into Bring It On. And loving female relationships in there, but also pair it with uh, Fried Green Tomatoes, the other movie that we almost talked about in this marathon. Yeah. Uh, another uh, that features that kind of unspoken uh, lesbian romance. Well, and again, I know I, I mentioned this one. Which I think is more prevalent in the book, right? You it's beat actually, me to it. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. I know I talked about it when it was actually in the running in the tournament. But yeah, I think it, it's ex not only like more prevalent, it's, it's explicit, explicit yeah. in the film. Or in the novel. In the novel, yeah. Uh, but that's where I'd take it and just kind of explore the history of, of that in, in film. Very cool, very cool. That would be a fun class. What are you going to do, Dalton? I, I'm not going to do something uh, really that entirely dissimilar from Arthur, but instead of looking at this this film's kind of sexual and gender politics, I'm just going to look at teenagers as a whole. Uh, this isn't going to be a film class. This is going to be a, you know, a, a sociology or social history class. Uh, we are going to kind of be looking at uh, just evolving views of teenagers and evolving depictions of teenagers. Uh, we'll definitely look at uh, the in invention of adolescence, which is a Psychology Today uh, article that was, or a, a, well, 
bit of research. I don't know. It's it's was published in uh, ninety five in Psychology Today, but it was reviewed in twenty sixteen. Uh, but there's a ton of great writing. Um, well, that, that's a great one to start with because it does talk about how puberty has been inched back basically a, about a year every 25 years that's uh, occurred since like the mid-1800s. We just kind of keep pushing adulthood back a little bit, which is good. I That's a good thing that we've done. Let's go ahead and call it 25 now, honestly. Fuck it. Um, but I, I think it is interesting to look at uh, the the history of teenagers, the history of adolescence, and, and look at how we as a society have viewed these people. I think it'll be also interesting to look at how Hollywood has viewed these people. It is with the 1960s that the primary demographic that uh, studios are targeting shifts from family films and films targeted towards adult men who have the most discretionary income. And in the 60s, as teenagers are getting vehicles and jobs of their own, that Hollywood does start to pivot more uh, towards t- teenagers, which you could argue that we've spent the last 20 years only making uh, Hollywood films for teenagers, and I would agree with you if, if you made yeah. an argument. But I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I'm just going to rattle off some of the films that first came to mind for me as being interesting for this class. It's a long list, so I'm not going to bother to talk about any film individually, but obviously we'll look at Bring It On. Uh, but I really do want to start from the 80s, probably, because uh, that is... You get you got some teen movies. You got the, you know, the beach movies of the 60s and stuff. There's some teen movies in the 70s, but I think... Uh, you know, um, of course, American Graffiti in the mid '70s is kind of a, a big landmark moment. Uh, but we'll look at uh, probably Revenge of the Nerds, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Clueless, Can't Hardly Wait, and Things I Hate About You. Bring it on, obviously. Uh, in the middle of the class, for sure, uh, we are going to look at not another teen movie, and that might be the only film we watch in its entirety because it does such a great job of deconstructing teen films in the '90s and early aughts. Um, honestly, I, I would argue that not another teen movie did such a good job of deconstructing these tropes. We didn't get another good teen movie for about 15 years, uh, which I think is pretty fucking interesting if you ask me. Um, but at the other end of that decade, we have Superbad, which is a, an earnest teen film that is leaning into the raunchiness of not another teen movie in a really effective way. Uh, we'll also look at, you know, after we get out of the aughts, though, I think we get, you know, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Edge of Seventeen, and Booksmart, which kind of does make the argument that the teens have been a really great decade for movies about teens. And, you know, to be fair, the 2010s was a decade where I stopped being a teenager. But I, I do find uh, that those films are just, I don't know, they're better. They're better than the movies I got about being a teenager when I was a teenager. Uh, And I think that's really valuable because those films are much more concerned with the emotional development of teenagers than the sexual development of teenagers. And I think throughout the 80s and 90s, that really is all teen movies are focused on is how bad they all want to fuck because all of these writers and directors couldn't get over how horny they were as teenagers. Uh, Because obviously with the films that I've listed, you know, we'll look at, you know, the depictions of... uh, yeah, unwanted pregnancy in uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. We'll look at the depictions of rape culture within uh, Revenge of the Nerds, and we'll draw that through line all the way through to incels. You know we fucking will. Uh, but we'll also look at the edge of 17 and how when you're a teenager, sex is weird and scary. Uh, also, of course, talk about, and I can't believe I didn't mention this, but of, of course we're going to talk about, um, oh my God, Bo Burnham's movie, Eighth Grade, uh, which I think is a, a fantastic film. Uh, so again, I think... We'll spend a a little bit of time talking about this depiction in the 80s and how that shifts over four decades, Uh, because I think there is some really interesting stuff there just in terms of how Hollywood is trying to pitch teenagers to teenagers. And I think the most interesting thing maybe is how a lot of films about teenagers are made by people in their 40s, starring people in their 20s, marketed towards people who are about 13 to 16. 
And I think there's some interesting stuff there, especially, you know, even to bring it on. Uh, Peyton Reed lives out what I'm sure is a longtime fantasy of his of being a boy in a girl's locker room and not being told to leave. Uh, we definitely don't need that scene of everybody in their underwear, but we sure as shit get it in this film. And uh, I don't know. It's not too leering. It's not too gross, but it is. I don't know. Uh, I, I did. You know, look, I'd ask Peyton Reed a question about it. I'm sure he has thoughts on it that are not pervy. I'm sure he has a, a reason for thinking that fil- that scene is necessary. But I'd be curious to ask him about it. Um, you know, I'm not. I'm not trying to impine any. You know, impugn anybody's dignity. Rather, uh, but I, there's just an, an interesting things to be found throughout the decades, because you know, as we talked about in our reviews, there's a lot of problematic stuff in this movie. But it's all stuff that people, you know, the scene in the car. I think, you know, it's hard to say what comes from the screenplay uh, and what comes from the the actual production itself unless you have a, a pre-shooting script in your hand but the the scene on their way to the the away game uh, which you know Eliza Dushku thinks she's being a, a hip ally by throwing around the other f word Ooh, boy. but again I think that's how Peyton Reed and maybe the screenwriter thought teenagers talk to each other and and to be fair in the early aughts that is kind of how teenagers talk to each other totally true that's how the teens I knew talked about gayness even if they were trying to be supportive so I I, you know I I don't think that it's it's necessarily a a, you know indictment of anybody's morality or or their ethics but it is an indictment of culture Uh, and I, I think that is what's more valuable right we don't need a dunk on filmmakers we don't we don't need to dunk on you know anybody in the industry outside of people who are known to be uh, bad actors. What we need to dunk on is, is our inability to get past certain things as a culture. And I think that maybe that's what this will focus, this class will focus on. As I said, we'll look at the evolving definition of adolescence, the evolving definition of teenagers, and how that's socially created. Uh, and I, I think again, much like last week's class, we're kind of looking at. Um, you know, all these different films about intelligence agencies and, and insurgencies, uh, you know, last week's uh, episode, that was kind of where we were focused. This is going to be similar. We're going to look at the evolving nature and the evolving depictions of teenagers uh, in film, but we'll also, you know, try to look at the liturgy. We'll look at the, the academics and the scholarship around um, these changing movements. We'll talk about yuppies. We'll talk about punks. You know, I think all that stuff is super important, too. But it is, uh, again, kind of going to be an overview of the last four decades of teendom. Uh, and how that's evolved, because I think if you look at something like Book Smarter, The Edge of Seventeen, and then look back at the 80s, you can see definitely see through lines in terms of the same interests and the same focuses, but you can see an evolution in terms of treating teenagers like real people that I think is very interesting. Very cool, very cool. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, I think the class that I would be teaching, I was talking with Arthur a little bit beforehand because I was trying to put together my syllabus, and I had a couple of ideas and things that I wanted to do. And I I think what I want to talk about is theoretical films. It would be the name of the course. Uh, And it would be films that are inspired by or written uh, or made by film theorists. And the direct sort of relationship between theory and filmmaking. What are so, for instance, like you might open up like Eisenstein was a film theorist. He wrote, and so you would read Eisenstein, and then you'd write, watch rather Potemkin or something like that. It is always interesting when people who write about film go on to make films, right? And and so you know another example of that would be you know Jean Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, and sort of early French New Wave, and how they're working with Bazin and some of those early French critics, Ebert Uh, to some extent. Yeah, Ebert to an extent. Uh, Well, I was thinking more about. Uh, Laura Mulvey and Peter Wolin sure. and uh, Riddles of the Sphinx and uh, even the the filmmaking of uh, Brian De Palma and the way in which he sort of reiterates some of that uh, that Hitchcock kind of stuff and so the uh, particular 
you know, block that we would be in with Bring It On is this idea of the theft of dance uh, from African American culture and uh, the way in which. Uh, Do you Carol- mean the theft of American culture from African American culture? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so Carol Clover's got a great essay called Dancing in the Rain. We've talked about it before when we did the. Uh, Singing in the Rain episode, and this would be the place to go. So maybe you'd watch Singing in the Rain, you'd read Carol Clover, and then you'd watch Bring It On, because Bring It On, um, Carol Clover's uh, thesis is that uh, Gene Kelly uh, is stealing black, you know, African-American dance, you know, idioms and using them in a way that's more palatable for American audiences and making lots of money and there's no credit and those kind of things. It's plagiarism. It's basically the argument that she's making about Singing in the Rain is that it's 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 Gene Kelly's plagiarism of African-American culture. Do you remember when Robert Zemeckis gave Michael J. Fox credit for creating rock and roll? I do remember when that happened. It just seems relevant to what you're when talking Alvin about. Alvin Barry uh, heard that great song and called called his brother Chuck. Or hey, cousin. yo, Chuck, it's your cousin, Marvin I've, Barry. I've Marvin, got that sound you've been looking Not Alvin, Marvin, yeah. Truly one of the most deeply fucked scenes in all of American it's cinema. Really pretty messed up, yeah. And I think maybe that clip would be you know something to throw in there That as might well. be the thing to show on the first day of class. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, this particular little block here. And then bring it on, you know, one of the major sort of plot contrivances is how Red has been doing this. And uh, certainly others have been as well. And the way in which that plagiarism takes place. And it's okay when white folk are stealing from black folk. I mean, the way in which that just sort of gets glossed over throughout American history. And uh, have that conversation about that. Yeah, you know, like our our government buildings and such. Right. And, And moving on even further, I think, you know, we might even talk about the jazz singer a bit more, too. You know, the way in which this sort of, again, coded... Uh, racism that's going on there, and you know the what the the, the dueling mammy uh, jokes Ugh. that Cosmo makes, uh, going back again to the jazz singer in the sound era, and how that technological change uh, takes place, and you know with a lot of blackface being used, and uh, so yeah, I, you could watch a couple episodes of Thirty Rock. There's a lot of you could do. Yeah, that's, yeah, many, many places in which it could take place. But I, I think it'd be fun to do a class where you're sort of looking at the theoretical writings and then the films that followed those particular theoretical writings and films that are directly... And I, I think we can make a pretty direct connection here between what's going on thematically because Carol Clover's essays in 1995, and that's plenty of time for someone uh, who's in a screenwriting class who's having to take some film theory courses to have probably had to have been exposed to or read that essay. I'm sorry, did you say 1995? 1995 is when Clover I, wrote her I want to believe more than anything that they are the East Compton Clovers because of that essay. Oh, yeah? Nothing would make me happier. Uh, let's 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 find out if we can get in touch with the uh, the screenwriter of oh, this yeah. film, uh, Jessica Bindinger. I don't know. How Sounds to say right. That. Uh, I don't know how to say her last name, but uh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's only five years after that essay is released. Yeah, uh, I don't know, man. I mean, that's the connection I'd be making. Is that is that yeah. there is there is a uh, genetic link between that essay and this particular screenplay and the particular co- plot contrivances uh, that is put together. So that would be fun. And again, so this is more of a loose connection than say you know Godard or uh, Truffaut or Eisenstein to his own filmmaking, or even Laura Mulvey and Peter Wolwin. But I, I do think that could happen, and it does seem to be that there is a film school sort of influence that happens after this, especially in the 70s in mm-hmm. America. And uh, just sort of suss that out in various ways, but particularly here, um, theft being uh, particularly uh, pillaging of uh, minority cultures. Uh, for the sake of filmmaking. So there you go. Um, that's my thoughts. Uh, your syllabus just got longer, dear listener. I think now, though, it is time to get down to business. It's business. It's business.
Yeah. So uh, get down to business. I guess the biggie on the eye chart was part of what I was talking about. Well, um, Dustin, you must clarify that uh, business time is the time for analysis, where we that's r- right. really, uh, you know, become brain lords, uh, super geniuses, and start talking about this film as if it is one of the most important things that's ever existed. Yeah. We'll do our best. We'll, we'll, <laughs> see, we'll see what we can do. Um, and Arthur and I were talking off mic a little bit about this movie and how it's not quite remember the Titans. And uh, you know it's n- it's not quite as preachy as it could be. Maybe I I I, I don't know. Uh, let's just talk about that sort of tightrope that's being walked here, and and the kinds of movies that we're, we're we're the distinction we're trying to make between these two films or films like it. You, do you mean specifically sports films that engage with race? Yeah, I think any film or kind of you know satire. This is a topic. You know, mm-hmm. I I mentioned to Dustin. You know, if this film comes out today. And Gabrielle Union and the Clovers are given the screen time that they're given here with the way this film pans out. It's, you know, we're going to look at, like, what are you doing? Yeah. The I mean, conversation's not there. Totally. It's, it's raising the question. It's bringing it to awareness. But then it's like, oh, we're going to go back and focus on this other team. And that's, you know, obviously Torrance uh, is, you know, the main character. But like you said, there's you yeah. There's know, scenes in the trailer where, where she's got a boy, where uh, ISIS has a boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. There's like clearly entire subplots that lot are gone, mm-hmm. and it feels like it wants to engage somewhat with that racial subtext and that kind of idea of appropriation. Um, well, it's smart enough to let the the clovers win, which I think is cool. I, oh I, yeah, I, I love mean, a film where the pro tags don't get first place. I think that's yeah, awesome. That's a good choice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I watched this movie. I was like, there's no way, other way this could end. Like, yeah. there's no other good way this would end. Right. I mean, if it's a tie, it cheapens it. If <laughs> If uh, the uh, the meat factory wins, then it's bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so that kind of I don't know if that takes any of the surprise out of, it, but I think it works well. But it, it feels like you know, in contrast to another movie, two thousand that came out is Remember the Titans, mm-hmm. which is all about obviously little heavier racial implications because it's about this Jim Crow in yeah, the sixties and yeah, and, you know, integration, combined, yeah, integration. Yeah. I couldn't think of the word. Um, but you know, whereas Remember the Titans feels very preachy and. A little bit, I don't know if it feels white savory because obviously Denzel's there, but um, it, it does feel a little more preachy about all these kind of themes and topics and ideas of race relations and things of that nature. And it's obviously catered toward a younger audience, yeah. but I think you Bring It On doesn't ever really want to try to go that far, but it also doesn't seem like it wants to go far enough. It I, just kind of wants to bring it up and then move on. The thing you're hitting on, Arthur, that I think is super smart though, is the fact that, especially in the early aughts, and I would say really until the last six, five five to six years, um, I mean, racism within America did kind of become more uh, microaggression-y, more, uh, you know, that fake uh, color blindness type shit. Uh, And it is interesting for the 2000s to make, you know, this interrogation of race in America more about uh, dumb shit white people do without thinking about. Right. Um, and so I, I think while you're right that there is a certain heavy handedness that is period appropriate for, for Revenge, Revenge of the Titans. <laughs> Remember the Titans. Jeez. Um, sequel to Clash of the Titans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Revenge of the Titans. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think you're making a. The film or kind at of least has. The Clovers. There, there's a. <laughs> there, there is a certain amount of, like, uh, accuracy. Like, a, at the, you know, again, time and place accuracy that this film has, especially with its desire to not really want to get into race because that's kind of what the late 90s and early aughts were all about is americans not wanting oh yeah no no no, we're good yeah yeah things are fine 
the eighties are over. Yeah, uh, and again, there's a weird way in which they sort of like gesture towards wokeness. You know, uh, she's like, okay, stealing's bad. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not because we're stealing from you know people from a minority culture. Just stealing's bad. Period. Stealing's bad. Period. And uh, that's all right. That's okay. You're gonna pump our gas someday. <laughs> well, that's the, the yeah the classism of that cheer towards this other team they're playing with is janked uh, they're not again and i i do love that uh gabrielle union and her, her friends show up dear to show like no 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 not even your competition stuff was stolen from us your game cheers were stolen from right. us too which and, i think rules I, it absolutely does rule but it, there's a weird way in which that's almost played off as a win for you know in, in the back and forth it's like okay well we got one back for you you know and uh it, it it's never really addressed, and I and again you you say classism, and it certainly it's economically driven, but it's racially charged, economically driven stuff. Yeah, you know, the gas team, station attendant. The it, team they're playing against is, is has more white people. Uh, you know, I, the Clovers cheer team seems to only be people of color, and, and the cheer team that they're cheering at at that game has you know is kind of diverse, uh, just across all Probably lines. Moderately white. Yeah, mm-hmm. pre- predominantly white. Agreed. But yeah, I think you're right. That does speak to like what. Rancho Carne High, presumably being a wealthy suburb of San Diego, oh boy, like yeah. all of it's just totally shit. It's and, none of it's good. And 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 you know, I mean, there's a way in which you know we don't need the white savior to come in as far as accepting the money. But, but that's then, the only scene we get with them, really. That in which because you know the the primer to that scene is them talking about this letter that they're going to write to the TV show host that came up in their neighborhood, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the only scene we get of the Clovers. That isn't directly about how they relate to to the Toros, right? But I gotta I gotta think about Paulette, yeah, uh, who's clearly an Oprah Winfrey sort of stand-in. Yeah, seems but, like, but she's Oprah Winfrey doing Butterfly McQueen. I mean, What's you know, Butterfly McQueen? Or, but, that, 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 that that sort of uh, African American sort of stereotype, you know, mm-hmm, gotcha. you know, okay, kind yeah, of yeah, thing, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's some lines that uh, Gabrielle Union has to deliver that are she does great with, but they're that are a little. Uh-oh. Well, her, the rest of her cohorts, um, especially, I mean, yeah. those lines are... Yeah. Well, to bring up Not Another Teen Movie, and again, pointing out the thing that you're doing does not mean you're not doing it, but there is a character that remarks, he's like, yeah, no, I'm the token in this film. Can't you tell? I'm here to say things like, damn, and that's whack. Mm-hmm. Which is how a lot of the lines for the Clovers are written. Yeah, yeah. they kind yep. of have yep. that very early aughts. Like, they got that all tokenism. hell no kind of thing mm-hmm. going on. Yeah, yeah it's... Well, even in the scene where they're writing to to Paul Paulette Patton, is that the fictional TV show? That sounds so. right. Yeah, yeah. It, I don't know, man. And, and again, I I think it's a good move, right? It's interesting to have Torrance think that the right thing to do is make sure they go to nationals, mm-hmm. and it's good to have ISIS be like, no, I don't. We don't want your help. We don't need your help. Get out of here. Like, I think the arc of the two of them coming to understand each other as team captains is kind of interesting. But you're absolutely right, Dustin, that there is a certain amount of just, like, even the good things that this film does do feel couched in a certain amount of just, like, tone deafness. Right. Absolutely. Well, and one of those things that it does, that I, I mean, it, it, it does whitewash, not, and again, not to racially charge that, but again, to sort of clean up this idea of competition and competitiveness uh, in, in a way that, you know, it, it, it sort of elides the destructiveness of that kind of competitiveness. One of the things I okay. thought about for expanding the syllabus was I just recently watched uh, through the Netflix ESPN series The Last Dance about oh, Michael yeah, Jordan yeah. and the Chicago Bulls. And Michael Jordan, greatest athlete, you know, of all time, arguably. You also know. a mean person. Uh, yeah, exactly. And 
the the you know there's a moment in there where Kirsten Dunst's character says something. I want them there because I want to beat them. You know, I want to play the best. Because We're yeah. not the best if we don't beat the best. Yeah, I yeah. want to play the best and beat the best, and which is sort of like an argument that's been made in basketball a lot against sort of LeBron James. You know, and the the move he made when he went to Miami. Yeah. Then we're getting really in the weeds with basketball, but they put together sort of their dream team so they could win some national or some world championships. And uh, the the sort of way in which uh, the Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan era is elevated in argument here is that they never wanted to be on teams together. They wanted to beat each other. That's that's what they wanted. And uh, to prove that they were better than the other people, not playing with Dwayne Wade or whatever, you know. I know I've shared this anecdote on the show before. Do you guys know the, the Muggsy Bugs, Michael Jordan story? I do not. <sighs> okay, I'm, I'm always happy to tell it. So... Uh, Apparently, uh, I, I, there's no telling if this is apocryphal. Uh, I, I don't remember my source, but the story that I have heard is that one time Michael Jordan on the court during a game said to Muggsy Bogues, quote, shoot it, you fucking midget. Oh, wow. End quote. And Muggsy Bogues, for, uh, just like shooting average, went down for every game for the rest of his career after that. Hmm. What a, he cheated at a poker game at Charles Barkley's mom's house. That's the other story I've heard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that, that <laughs> one's a little bit more common. I think people have heard that one. But, yeah, just to your, to your point about, like, this aggressiveness uh, of, like, no, I, not only will I beat the best, I will mentally destroy them. I will do everything I can to get up in your kitchen. Yeah, and, and so there's there's a way in which this, you know, there, Red is willing to do anything, and she's breaking these rules by doing this sort of stealing kind of thing. But the fact of the matter is, this sort of cutthroat competition kind of thing is, is, is all about winning and all about performance and the ways in which that creates that environment. The film sort of acknowledges Red has gone too far because Red wants to win at all costs. Mm -hmm. But the, the film really doesn't talk about how this competitiveness itself could be part of the problem. It's not about you doing your best. It's about beating somebody else at this point. And Kirsten Dunst sort of does drink that particular brand of Kool-Aid. She wants to beat them. And I think the, I don't know, the, the only pushback that I would give you, because I think you're absolutely right, I I think the, the desire to beat them is to prove that they, they weren't fakes, right? Like, it does seem to be rooted in, I know that my entire high school career, like, the, the, is a lie. I don't care about academics, I only care about athletics, and the fact that I've been cheating, not to my knowledge this entire time, has kind of robbed me of my glory. So there, there does seem to be a certain amount of, like, I want to beat them because I know that I, I owe it to them to like compete against them on an equal playing field. Yeah, but and and the other pushback, I guess, is that they're all happy. Like even like kind of uh, the characters that have like Claire Kramer's character, uh, who would go on to play uh, the the heavy in season five of Buffy. Um, okay, thanks, Eliza. Her and Eliza Dushku. That's you know, it's always fun when actors show up in lots of things together. But anyway, she's kind of like the meanest cheerleader on the team throughout, right? And she's one of the first people to be like second place. All right, like there there is nobody's mad that they didn't win. So I think that's the only pushback I would give you on that, Dustin, is everybody does seem pretty happy to take yeah. second place. They're not mad to be beaten by the Clovers. Well, and again, it's, I mean, I, 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 I agree, but I don't believe that. And I guess that's where I'm not pushing back on you too hard is like the film wants to wrap around with a happy ending. But you're right that the text of the middle of the film is yeah. very much rooted in that. We have to beat them. Because yeah. I, I, one of the things I do um, every year in my life, um, this is I, maybe the dear listener doesn't know how much I like basketball. Um, and uh, I knew you like I didn't know. That. I know uh, you love baseball. I, I like basketball a lot. I haven't watched the NBA since Michael Jordan retired. But um, we have, Dustin. You know that 
the city that we record within has a pro basketball team, right? I don't right? care about them. Um, you don't care about Russ? I don't want to watch the Seattle Supersonics. Um, anyway. Oh, uh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, I, I, I frankly love it when we steal things from Seattle. Basketball teams, legalized marijuana. Grunge lo- music. Grunge music. I love stealing things from Seattle. But uh, anyway, uh, one of the things that I do is I go to a high school basketball tournament every year. The uh, the 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 uh, State championship basketball tournament every year for Class A, Class B. I go for Oklahoma. For Oklahoma, I didn't know that. Yeah, I go every year, and no uh, yeah, watch all the watch all the teams play. Sometimes there's a school I know I used to play against. Sometimes there isn't, but I, I watch them all. How more high doing? My my alma mater. I don't watch that. That's Class A, Class B. That's six A. You're like, oh, that's is... right. I go. I'm sorry. I always forget that. You I watch went... small schools. I, wa- I watch farm basketball. I for... when you said Class A, Class B, he's watching connect. Hoosiers, the real game. Ah, uh-huh, I see. Yeah. I see. Okay. So I you know go to this every year. I. When they do the awards ceremony at the end on Championship Saturday, there is um, definitely, you know, uh, there's a moment where they honor the runner-up who just lost. Mm -hmm. They are not, repeat, not and never happy Happy. about receiving that runner-up silver ball. They're they're never happy about it. Uh And so just, you know, again, every every year I've watched high school students get runners-up. No. So I don't buy it. You know, and that that's part of the why, you know, for that. So, I mean, that, that, that's, you know, kind of does get into the, uh, the weird and usually abusive legacy of like academic athletics in this country, though, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, and I can't speak to what it's like in other countries, but obviously the NCAA is uh, uh, evil. Yeah, let's go ahead and go with evil institution. Yeah, for sure. Um, that, you know, continues like encourages this shit all the way back to junior high school um, and, you know, throughout. Uh, people's young adulthoods and, and their college careers. Absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I played junior high ball. I mean, I remember being ran till I threw up because of losing a game. You know, that's a thing that happened to us regularly. Boy, there sure are a lot of abusive adults in the world of high school competitions, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And that's probably why they're not here in the film. I had a drama teacher once uh, who left my high school to go to a new high school in my senior year when I was still at my old high school, uh, apparently say that I had gotten fat, which is... Yeah, that's fun. That's a fun that's thing mean. to hear somebody said about you. Well, and that's what um, Sparky says, you know, about yeah. several of the other actresses, you know, and which is just awful. But that's how people, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm speaking for my sister here, but that's how people fucking talk about your body when you're a dancer or, you know, a yeah. female athlete. All of you, whatever you ate today, eat half that. Except for you, you eat nothing. Yeah, that's pretty common. Yeah, that's yeah. not, un- I'm, well, and even with male athletics, right? Yeah. Like, all fighters have an eating disorder. God, mm-hmm. wrestlers? But yeah, I mean, I'm including I'm including wrestlers and you know fighters, combat sports, yeah. combat athletes. Yeah, they you're talking about people who will in their daily life weigh 160 pounds, cut down to like 140, and then hydrate themselves back up to 160 for their actual fight. They're yeah. only cutting for like the the fucking semantics of the weigh in. Yeah. They fight at the weight that they usually carry in their day to day life because they've been filled full of fluids prior to. Yeah, it's a weird, messed up world. And again, I. I only talked about you know combat sports because that's something I know a little bit about. Uh, but it, yeah, it permeates uh, athletics, uh, especially ath- athletics like cheer uh, or combat sports, where your weight is relevant to your performance and your competition. And and though we have representation of that in the film, it does not. It's just skated by. It's yeah. just skated by. Just the the sort of again. And there's not really a mental toll even of the fat shaming that goes on. There's not a mental toll of the sort of eating disorder, you know, th- sort of stuff that goes on. And and just the way in which this competition, uh, the competitiveness, of, and I'm all for competition. I like to win. I like to play games and win. I like to beat people in games. I mean, I 
you know, that's fine. That's fun. But um, I, I also like to play the games that I'm playing. And there is a way in which the film sort of fails to reckon with the fact that fun can come out of it in this in this sort of circumstance. Even though Kirsten Dunst is like, I don't know how much I like it. But she does. She ends up just, I love the thing. And I'm like, oh, see, I don't know so much that you do. And I don't buy it. Sure. Yeah. I get what you're saying. There, there is a the film wants to have it both ways a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I get what you're saying because I, I do love the. It's cool that we got second place. I love the hey Mickey, like we're all friends having fun outtakes, uh, music video ending. Mm-hmm. Like that shit's fun and quirky and I don't know, cute. I like it. But I agree with you that, w- that I think you've you've made your point very well that the the film does seem at odds with itself yeah. in terms of this topic. So let's talk about queerness um, because I think that, that, you know, we talked about Missy being coded queer and uh, I guess I, in, in, in case the dear listener is going, wait, what? Can we uh, go through, can we enumerate her codings? I, I mean, to be fair, it, it, there, she doesn't express any interest towards men. She doesn't mm-hmm. talk about her own sexuality at all other than to like, give a dunk on somebody after they've, you know, said something homophobic towards her. Uh, she seems way quick to throw out the F word uh, towards the the one male cheerleader we get confirmation is gay. Um, and, and the D word uh, about the, the two uh, girls on the squad that have been really mean to her and like the, the clo- and impugning, you're not impugning, implying something about their relationship because of how close they are. So I, I guess that stuff, like her, her comfortability uh, and and not seeming like she's trying to do it in a, a hateful or negative way of using slurs. Like the the scene does seem to be about Missy like reclaiming, deflecting, deflecting slurs, reclaiming slurs. There is her just kind of general like tough chickness. Um, I I don't know. The film doesn't like put a lot of stock into it, but there's enough there that I see why like the discourse around this film has has decided that you know or the, the head canon for some people is that yeah Missy's gay. I mean, there's nothing here, I guess, to say that she's not. So saying that she is, is no. I mean, the evidence is there. Only in so much as that, and I guess if if you're looking for specificities, Dustin, the only specificity we really get is just that she's not falling in line with female gender norms of the early aughts, but that doesn't mean she's gay. And she doesn't have a romantic subplot, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, there's that, um, which again is very, very you know sanitized, mm-hmm. you know queerness, if if at all. We do have then uh, another character whose sexual orientation is self-professed to be quote controversial. Yeah, well, that's who I was talking about. That's uh, the character who's driving on their way to this away game, and that's you know this is the whole the scene I was just talking about. But now. he doesn't say I'm gay. Well, and his only <sighs> it, Eliza Dushku asks if he speaks. I'm not going to say it, but then he goes, oh, yeah, fluently. So that's the closest we get. And there's a scene where he flirts with another guy at Nationals. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's that's queer queerness within Hollywood in the early aughts, right? Like, you get, like, some very chaste flirting, and that's and it's about like, oh, all you get. like, oh, I like this boy, and that's it. Yeah, it's yeah. like this very, very sort of eight-year-old's level kind of crush. Yeah. This is a fucking 18-year-old adult man. Mm-hmm. Come on. Uh, I don't know. I agree with you, Dustin, that, that the, the coding for Missy's there. It, it would certainly be nicer if there was more of it. It, it doesn't hurt that it's not there, um, but it, it certainly doesn't help that it's not there either. I yeah. Um, I don't know. Again, I I see why people would go, yeah, Missy seems queer to me, but there's also not... I, I, I'm struggling to think of any one scene in particular that feels exceptionally... Uh, I don't know. Somebody with a... you know. A, closer handle on this experience than me might uh, be able to to write in at good underscore trash and let us know uh, or good, good 
or goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. That's how you can get all of us. Um, I don't know. I, I hope a listener out there who has like deeper, more nuanced thoughts on this can get with us. But I, I'm struggling to think of anything that does specifically code Missy that way, other than, and again, all the things that about Missy that would lead somebody to conclude uh, that she's gay. I'm like, it's from yeah. the absence of evidence. It's almost. from the absence of evidence and also just the, like a refusal to like be down with, with uh, the norms of her school. But that seems more to be that she's an L.A. kid, mm-hmm. right, than that she's a queer kid. Yeah, slightly rebellious kind of you know, writing. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about uh, Kirsten Dunst's boyfriend. Which uh, one, Aaron? Aaron, the yeah, one that's cheating on her. Yeah, the yeah, one's yeah. cheating. Not on her, her love interest, Cliff. No, not not, not Cliff. Missy's brother. Yeah, yeah, okay, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, Aaron. Aaron uh, seems coded like where it's going to be revealed he's been gay, right? Yeah, and it is revealed he's just cheating on her. And, and yeah, and I find that to be really kind of fascinating. I suspect in the original screenplay, it's revealed that he's gay because yeah, there's that long scene. I wouldn't be surprised in which uh, the little brother Justin is uh, just harassing poor Torrance about you know this is what he's doing you know and uh, and then the way in which the jocks are, you know, again, sort of leveling this sort of gay charge at all the cheer- male cheerle- cheerleaders. And uh, and then at the same time going, wow, they get to, you know, handle a lot more Heine than I do. Well, right? this is the thing that is interesting, right? The in the the same conversation. And really, it is the, the drive to this away game that has the most on-screen in in the film text on, you know, queer issues. Uh, but it's the it's the male cheerleader male cheerleader who says that he's straight is the one that's like oh well sure you're going to be objects of uh, male desire but people are going to think that I'm gay okay bud calm down your buddy who's driving you to this game is gay like Actually let's not gay. act like that's a big deal chill the fuck out right but uh, you know it, it is interesting that the film again it does feel very much like a Peyton Reed thing right like he's he is kind of interested in the male POV of this film so he's trying to pivot for a moment if only for a scene. Uh, just to the the experience of these male cheerleaders, and you know, I don't know. It's good that they reckon with that, right? That there are gay and straight, and probably in between, uh, you know, male cheerleaders. It's good to touch on that. I don't know that it's super effective to just only address these issues in one scene. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that it does, and I think it's it, this is problematic to my mind, is that it makes it okay. So gay's okay, and you can be a part of a cheerleading squad, and it's fine that you are, and it's okay that people would say or suggest that about you. But the reason why it's okay for you as a straight guy to be involved is because you might slip a thumb up your uh, friend yeah. while you're helping her not get a concussion. Yeah, that's fucked. That that's exactly is like, It is literally this that same game where he's like, "Oh yeah, what's her doodle never wears underwear." So you and can, we get a scene of her clearly catching a digit. That's a weird scene, dude. It is very weird. And and you know, and the and the film sort of like coaches it as though she is inviting slash into it and then as soon as she dismounts, she like shoves him. So it's it's gross. It's an assault. It, yeah, I, I, ooh, that scene wigged me out, dude. Because uh, right before that, she hikes her skirt up before she bends over or something like that. I'm right, just in front totally of wigged out by yeah. that scene. Yeah, it, and it is, it's super problematic. Because but, again, it is this guy who's like talking about how his number one concern is how the football team's going to think he's gay because right. he's on the cheer team, and, and is then like overcompensating by molesting, for lack of a nicer way to put it. Well, there's a later scene where he's helping her stretch, and the football guys walk by. Maybe we should be on the team. Yeah. yeah I forgot about that scene. You're right. And, and so it, it, what it does is like, hey, by the way, you'll be accepted if you're gay, and if you're straight, you can be a sexual offender. I mean, that's kind of why they tell you you should be in theater, as somebody who, as somebody who was in theater isn't in high school. Like, yeah, whether... Whatever thing you want, whatever extracurricular you're looking into as a straight dude in high school that's not athletics, 
yeah, I mean, at least when I was, you know, 10 years ago or so, that was the selling point. Well, was like, like well, yeah, girls. you'll be around hot girls all the time. And you might get to kiss one if on stage, right? Yeah, so. which is it's just a weird, that's not how you should sell shit to people. Just don't. I mean, the acceptance stuff is the thing. That's the thing. Regardless of who you are, people accept you because this is just a place where people congregate. And maybe this is a nice place to pivot because we've been kind of harping on this. I don't know. I, I think let's pivot here and maybe say one thing that is nice about this film is like Torrance as the nice popular girl. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Which is, you know, cheerleaders a are not fresh bad. Air. A breath of fresh air. Exactly. Especially 20 years ago when like cheerleaders were only villains in high school movies. Uh, it is nice to see Torrance, and and even though this film does try to like position the Clovers as the antagonists, as Arthur mentioned, like even within the cinematic language of the film, we get this low angle shot when they uh, do the burr, it's cold out here che- chant, and just body slam Torrance into oblivion. Uh, using the cinematic language of film, they are positioned as the villains of the film, which is dicey. Um, but but even the quote unquote villains of the film are you know willing to forgive if if not forgive at the very least accept Torrance as a legitimate competitor mm-hmm. uh, Torrance and her team I should say so that stuff's good and then uh, to to my mind I, I think that that's that's useful to not let uh, for the the dicey racial politics of this film to let that aspect of it be about bridge building is. You know, probably better than anything else it could have done. Yeah, for sure. I think the positioning of Torrance is like, no, Missy's clearly the best. She just like did some straight up ninja stuff uh, for her audition. She's on the team. Period. I don't care what you think about her. She's on the team. In fact, I'll go to her house and tell her she's cool if it means she joins the team. I don't know. I like that. I, I like that too. And I, you know, she is again sort of a Polly Pureheart in many ways, and that's not bad. Yeah, it's Kirsten Dunst, man, or Kurt. is it Kirsten or it's Kirsten. I should know. I have a friend named Kirsten. Uh, Miss Dunst. Miss Dunst. I've always said Kirsten. I it's spelled Kirsten, but I don't. I've heard it said both ways. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Miss Dunst, as you as you've said, is is so great. Uh, just in general, as like a screen presence, like there is just a, a combination of like manic comedy and like genuine pure heartedness in, in a lot of her roles. It's a, a fun combination. Yeah, and I and I do like that, and I I do enjoy that thoroughly. I mean, again, I don't want to be like again just sort of like raining on the parade every chance I get, which is not. No, what it's I'm good that you do. should problematize it though, because there's a lot of wacky early aught stuff to talk about. The rest, of the cheerleaders, is what I want to say. Yeah, they are all kind all of, mean. They're well. There's only the, it's it's Whitney and. I forget the other one's name. Whitney and Courtney? I don't know. The, the, Sounds right. The, the, those are the only two like cheerleaders who, in Big Red. Mm-hmm. Those are the only other like Toros who have substantial amounts of dialogue. And it's all about how they're jerks. And, you know, and outside of Isis, who seems to have some sort of strength of character, um, I, one would assume from just the bits of dialogue that the rest of the members of the Clovers have is um, they're just as catty and mean. Well, again, we only get one scene with the club. And, you know, uh, th- there's a girl group that was popular in the 90s, Black, spelled QE, with a Q-U, Q-U-E. Uh, a lot of them are, I think all of them, are populating uh, the, the Clovers team. Hmm. So, like, they're mm. known, like, quantities within the entertainment industry. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. But the only scene that anybody really other than Gabrielle Union's character Isis gets is the scene where they're writing the letter. That's the only moment where we get really in right. the interior life outside of... No, fuck them. We don't have to be nice to them. Well, that and where uh, they're begging Isis to let her let him beat up um, Torrance and Missy. Yeah, which, totally fair. Totally fair, but also... That's all we get to know about But them. it's also, yeah, mean. It's, it, it is it, mean, and it is not great optics based on the rest of the film. Right. 
Yeah, I get what you're saying. I'm just, so I just, I'm just, I mean, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Kirsten Dunst's uh, niceness uh, as a cheerleading uh, lead cheerleader. And it's not like one of those stories in which the vapid, empty headed, you know, uh, materialistic uh, sort of Amy Heckerling, clueless uh, Alicia Silverstone character. Ooh, here he comes again. He's going to get us in trouble with people who like clueless again. Fin- finally grows a brain. You know, that's the sort of, you know, the, 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 the theory behind clueless. It doesn't do that. And I think that's a good thing. I think that in that in that sense, the arc of Torrance is better than uh, whatever her name is. Why can't I share? Share. Duh. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I get what you're saying, though. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I 100 percent agree with you, but I think you're making a good point. Uh, I think the other interesting, like if we're talking about you know archetypes within this film uh, and Hollywood tropes, the the Hollywood punk uh, is kind of I don't know. What, Cliff brings the human ape to the football game. Oh, brother. Fine, yeah. Oh, I listen to The Clash. You know, is that your band? No, it's a band. You know, you get Such a Aiden. fucking Timothy Chalamet and Ladybird character. Right. Where, where he's uh, reading uh, People's History. Ugh, I feel yeah. so dunked on by that Timothy Chalamet. And that, and that, if anything, does speak to our growth as a film-going culture in the 20 years between Bring It On and Lady Bird, is that the Cliff character is a, a punchline in Lady Bird. For all intents and purposes, and that is yeah, definitely an improvement there. No, but those guys. I look; those guys are going through some shit in high school. They're not always nice guys. No, they're they're absolutely not always nice guys. Although he, I've known some plenty of punks who are better dudes than most of the people around them. Well, punks tend to be really good dudes. Well, there's some shady ones in there too, for sure, for sure. But and I'm not just talking about the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but uh, the, the the idea though that. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking about Kirsten Dunst um, having a Led Zeppelin shirt in um, that stupid uh, toy movie that she's in, Small Soldiers. Didn't we? Yeah, stupid toy movie. You mean that beloved toy movie directed by Joe Dante? I, I said stupid, and so because I'm stupid, covered brain, on the show, I'm mad yeah. at myself for not coming up with that. I'm not. I'm not making a judgment on toy soldiers. Uh, <laughs> Whatever, but this idea that you know you're you're deep because you know something beyond just your immediate moment, mm-hmm. fine. But I, I just like that actually... everybody listens to the Ramones, literally yeah. everybody. And so yes, just because you know Blitzkrieg Bop does not mean you are deep. Yeah, and, and that that's even the... in the year two thousand, right? Or London Calling, you know, for yeah. the sake of the Clash. But um, for the sake of the Clash is the name of my new cover band. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's yeah. I, again. This is how you do it, I guess. And that's, know? I mean, Missy kind of, a uh, long, long time ago back in, in, in the show. I don't know that we've ever, we haven't talk, wa- watched Breakfast Club for the show, have we? But Dustin, you referenced Breakfast Club when we watched The Faculty long, long, long ago. Yeah. Uh, and the Breakfast Club vacation of, of the character in that film. We get a little bit of that with Missy, right? Like, Missy is like just as punk and goth as her brother and, uh, you know, just becomes a cheerleader. I, I, I don't think the film is as egregious as the Breakfast Club by any stretch of the imagination, obviously. But we get a little bit of that, right? Like her brother's kind of d- dunking on her for like being so quick to become a cheerleader, uh, especially when he gets his fifis hurt that Torrance, it turns out, has a boyfriend. Like again, it's all like uh, all of the Jesse POV stuff does really kind of like mess with the film in a, a way that's not Jesse's the actor's name. The Cliff POV stuff messes with the film in a way that's not super helpful. Right. But, but it's good. I mean, it's still fun. I mean, you know. it is fun. We were just talking about depictions of cheerleaders in films. So I was like, all right, let's talk about the Hollywood depictions of, of teen punks for a second. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, any other big thoughts that we want to make sure that we wrestle with with Bring It On? Uh, I mean, other than that, uh, Rancho Toro High definitely owes the cor- Clovers rep- reparations of some kind. Uh, no, it's, I've, I, we talked. I have a note here about the PG thirteen uh, R rating divide, but 
Yeah, we kind of covered that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, uh, C, um, I, but I'm a cheerleader, and then this film is not yet rated um, as, yeah. for something as sort of a conversational counterpoint, I think, for that. So let's render a verdict, then, on this film. What do you say, Arthur, with Bring It On? Is it on the shelf, or is it in the trash? I am ever so lightly going to place it on the shelf. I, I like it quite a bit. I think it's a lot of fun. I, I'll go back to it and revisit it. I, I, I enjoy it quite a bit, and so it's it's one that I would put on my shelf, yes. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, I'm, I'm also going to shelf it. Uh, far be it from me to say a cult favorite shouldn't be a cult favorite, uh, and I think the love around this film, is, as I've been exposed to it anyway, does seem to reckon with the stuff about this film that's problematic, and that's uh, it's, again, as I have experienced the, the kind of the fandom and love for this movie, it, it is always reckoning with um, some of the stuff in here that's icky. I, I, I don't know anybody that, like, is a huge fan of the sequels. I, I, I have unfortunately not met any of those people. I'm quite curious of their thoughts. Um, and I'm, I'm honestly curious if there's anything interesting going on in the sequels. I'm not going to watch them all. Uh, if I'd had, you know, a month to prepare for this episode, maybe I would have. Uh, but again, I, I, I think uh, the problematic two, year 2000 stuff about this movie, uh, if anything, does kind of help engagement with it. Uh, as far as just talk about wa- watching things with our 2020 eyes, uh, or y- the year 2020 eyes, I should clarify. Um, no, no, I think there's useful stuff there. So, very yeah, good. I'm not going to take it off the shelf. Very good, very good. What I'm going to say is uh, this is like a particular kind of taste, and it's not my particular type of taste, but that being said, I still think shelf because of what I'm going to call the Bob Dylan factor. It's a thing, and a lot of people care about it, and despite the fact that you may not like the way Bob Dylan sings, he's a thing. And although I happen to love Bob Dylan, and I'm sort of making that case oftentimes to other people, like you should listen to Bob Dylan, the same case being made to me that you should watch Bring It On, I am convinced by their passion, and therefore I would shelf it. And much like Bob Dylan, you don't need to listen to the later stuff. No. You don't have to watch the later Bring It On movies. Although the most recent Bob Dylan album's pretty good. Um, but you, not, not the 80s stuff so much, though, huh? Uh, no. <laughs> I like that you know go- which 80s stuff I'm talking about. I like that gospel moment, but... For for weird reasons, you know. okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, you got to serve someone. Uh, it's it's a good song. But anyway, uh, I'm I'm more of a Bob Dylan fan than I am a Bring It On fan. With that being said, I because I am a Bob Dylan fan, I have to put Bring It On on the shelf. So there you have it. There you go, dear listener. Well, listener, I certainly hope you have thoughts on Bring It On. If you do, you can go to at good underscore trash on Twitter. I forgot to do this segment last week because we had so much uh, fun talking about our, our, our movie last week. Um, yeah, good underscore trash on Twitter, uh, good trash genre cast at gmail.com. If you want to send us some long form feedback, you know, we appreciate that. Yeah. Very into it. Rate, review, subscribe. You know the deal. Goodtrashmedia.com. If you want to go to the website and see everything that, uh, you know, we help, uh, put out there or at the very least, you know, pay for hosting fees so people can have out there. What other stuff you ask? Well, there's the Wheel of Randy, uh, hosted by the very cool Dan Wade, where he talks about uh, Randy Newman uh, with a different guest each week. Uh, that That's the new show on the network. Uh, the Praise Down with Heath and Alex and its robust back catalog. They're also currently figuring out their remote recording situation. So there's all kinds of fun stuff. GoodTrashMedia.com. Good underscore trash on Twitter. Let us know what you think. Shelf or trash? Very cool, very cool. Well, so, um, what are we doing next week, Arthur? Tell us about that. We had a redemption run uh, for one final episode of How We Never Covered, and we put our four uh, failed finalists up against each other to see what we would watch next week. It's a loser's bracket. It is. No bracket, just a four-way race. We took the prestige. Consolation tournament. Yeah. There we go. Uh, We took the prestige versus Booksmart versus the Babadook versus the Sixth Sense. And next week, we are going to be watching... 
The Prestige. Very narrowly eking out a lead uh, over uh, the Babadook. Babadook. Yep. Yeah. It was very close. I believe the Sixth Sense was in dead last, right? Yep. That's what I thought. Shocker. <sighs> I don't know. I would have rather watched the Babadook, um, Babadook. still. Duck. I, I don't know. I haven't seen The Prestige in a couple of years. It'll be fun to revisit. I'm excited to see Hey, you. look. I'll get to watch a Christopher Nolan movie this summer. There you go. Hi-oh. Not the one I hope to, but what are you going to do? Take what you can get. Uh, you know I will. So that's what we do here at the Good Treasure Undercast. We take what we can get. So you keep watching. <laughs> we'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.